Hello, and welcome to the TV Movie Rewind Podcast with Matt and Todd. Hey, everyone. It's October 1st as we record this, so we're entering into our Halloween Horror Fest season once again, where we'll be covering horror movies for the month of October. And we are returning to our favorite director, John Carpenter, not for a Halloween sequel, but uh, for The Fog, which was his follow-up to Halloween. Yeah, it was certainly, uh, I'm pretty sure it was the second movie as I had seen probably just after Halloween, probably the same year. Yeah, more than likely. I mean, this was a big hit on television. Yeah, I was on TV a lot. Probably because it was new to TV. I mean, we wouldn't have been aware of it. But, you know, once the broadcasting rights were up, were available to put it on TV, it was it was in heavy rotation because Halloween was, of course, a huge hit. They spent very little money making it. In fact, Halloween was the most profitable movie and it held that that record for decades until the Blair Witch Project came along. Which was and, also an independent film made for very little, but exploded yeah. um, into profit. Yeah. So, of course, John Carpenter became a big ticket item. You know, studios wanted him to do their next big horror thing. And the fog is what came next. And, and we get the gang back together, more or less. I mean, we get him, we get Jamie Lee Curtis, we get Deborah Hill, we get Dean Cundy, we get Tommy Lee Wallace. Like, you get the gang back together. But not only Jamie Lee Curtis, but Nancy Loomis and Nancy Charles Loomis, Cypress yep, as well. Charles Cyphers, exactly. But yeah, this, I actually prefer this uh, to Halloween. Right on. This is um, of of John Carpenter's horror movie output. This is my favorite. Well, I guess Thing is more also a horror movie. So second favorite after Thing. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I, I think for a long time, I probably favored this movie over Halloween, but for whatever reason, it, it was and has always been Halloween. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, I don't know what he thinks about it after the fact, but I know Carpenter was not very happy with the first cut of the film. So he had a lot. Um, I'm not sure if his opinion has changed much since. Like I know... Jamie Lee Curtis was like surprised there was a following for the movie. I think she felt it wasn't very good. Um, but I don't know how much of the final cut, you know, the the addition, like the months long of um, extra stuff that they put back, they put into the movie before it finally came out. Well, you know, upon repeated viewings, there there are, there is a lot of the movie is kind of a mess story wise. Yeah, you kind of just have to see it let it happen i don't think too much about it much like a lot of horror movies but this one is is especially yeah well john carpenter himself has described it as a uh a dark spooky ride where you know you're just along for a ride and you come along and there's you know jump scares just kind of come at you it's a ghost story right i mean and and i think it's great that it starts with that way um you know, it was added, the John Hausman scene was added in later, thankfully, because it's one of the best scenes of the film, and it's the first one you get. It sets the tone exactly right. Um, and, well, I guess I just said it, right? It sets the tone exactly right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and, and it begins with, like we said, John Hausman telling a story to a group of children gathered around the campfire, and John Hausman is getting the Whit Bissell Award from me for this movie. Right on, yeah. Good choice. Uh, I mean, he just totally sells it in this one he, scene as he's playing like the old sea captain telling the old spooky story. Yeah. And what's great about it is the story he tells isn't really the story of the film 
or the real story of the Andrea Dane. Not exactly, no. In fact, it's told perfectly to scare the children, like, oh, it was a campfire that lured the Andrea, right. the, the Elizabeth Dane. Elizabeth the Dane, Elizabeth right. Dane to shore, and they were shipwrecked, and they all drowned horribly. And on this very night, they may be searching out that very campfire that brought them to their doom, and the ghosts will have their revenge. Well, he might be telling the true story that part of the fog is based on. Um, the the story of the ship that was deliberately sunk in order to plunder it. Like, maybe that's the story he's telling. Or something along those lines. Or just yet another story to creep out the kids. But damn, does he do it so well. And he holds that audience. I mean, I would have been there at any age. I would have been exactly like those kids, just entranced. Yeah, it's obviously like the, the, the tale that the founders told to right. explain how they got the money. Which, you know, as you, you watch the movie more of the truth about what happens to the Elizabeth Dane and its crew unfolds. But that, again, all that is just a, a reason to set up the ghost story and the ghosts and their killing spree and all the spooky things that are happening in the town of Antonio Bay. We, we get, uh, it's an ensemble cast and a lot of the cast actually don't even really meet each other. Like um, Adrian Barbeau as Stevie Wayne, most of her films, her sequences are filmed by herself. She's got a couple of scenes with her son. Uh, well, the, not her, her, her the, the, the kid playing her son, but most of her scenes take place in the lighthouse as she's doing her radio show. And she's to- to- shown interacting well, not interacting, but talking with other people over the phone and over the radio, but she never in any scenes with anybody else. No, it's like she's in a different kid. movie, yeah. And then, even then, we got, like, we, we mentioned this, um, Jamie Lee Curtis is in this movie, as is Jamie Lee Curtis's real-life mother, Janet Leigh. Yeah. But, they don't appear together on screen until the very end of the movie. No, you almost kind of get like three different stories or three. Di- you get three different perspectives of the movie and they kind of stay in their own world, uh, at least towards at least until the end. Which is important because it, yeah. the reason that works is because it's really about the town and not the individual characters. Exactly. Right. It's about the fog and the town. Yeah. This movie also um, stars Tom Atkins who will play a major role, Hal Linden, who will play maybe the most pivotal role after Adrian Barbeau's character, because she's really, not only is she Hal Holbrook, DJ, she's narrating the story almost. You mean Hal Holbrook, the priest? Hal Holbrook, yeah. not Hal Linden, yeah. No, not Barney Miller. Right. Uh, there's there's a brief sequence at the beginning of the movie at the church where uh, Hal Holbrook is drinking and reading and we get to see the director himself, John Carpenter, playing the uh, Bennett Tramer of this multiverse, of the John Carpenter multiverse. Which, this is again, this is a movie that rewards you for reading the credits because... Yeah, or being a John Carpenter fan for sure, yeah. That's where you really see the names of a lot of these characters. Like, you know, through the movie, you know, the characters only referred to as, as Tommy, you find out is Tommy Wallace. Right. You know, you find out the coroner played by Darwin Johnston of Assault on Precinct 13 is named Dr. Fives. Yeah. 
You know, all these great little, you know, um, in jokes that you don't know about unless you read the credits. Dan O'Bannon. Yes, um, Charles Cyphers plays, you know, Dan the Weatherman, who you find out in the credits is Dan O'Bannon. Right. Uh, Nick Castle is, the, <laughs> you know, is the is the lead, um, the character name, of course. Although yeah. I think he does at least introduce himself as Nick Castle. Right. But either way, like it's rife with name drops within his own universe. Yes. Uh, and including his own friends and family and and you know coworkers and including I mean maybe he does some, know someone named Ben or Bennett Tramer but um, you know Ben Tramer is the boy that Laurie liked in in Halloween the one that she begs uh, Lindsay to you know to tell him you know to, that that she's the one I'm going to date or whatever but uh, John Carpenter himself plays Bennett Tramer in this. And the movie begins, like we said, the ghost story, but then it cuts to the town, which I think was probably the original planned opening of the film right? at midnight. And all these strange things just happen, you know. Well, actually, I had read or what I, I, I this was, I guess, this part two, um, the, the weird stuff happening at the at the um, town. I guess that was an add in later as well. I'd love to see. It's probably not good, but I would like to have seen what the original like 80 minute cut was. Well, usually, again, what they will do is they will add scenes like this to give yeah. the audience something to get into before, you know, because you always want to have something at the beginning of the movie. Like, why am I watching this film? You know, I, I'm, I'm waiting for something spooky to happen. So let's give them something a little subtle. And that makes sense that's the impression I get. Like they just they didn't like he just wasn't feeling the movie at all. And, um, you know, horror movies is 80. Right. So horror movies are getting gorier and more more sophisticated so he felt he had to step things up so yeah i guess a lot was added including uh the john hausman bit um in order to like bring more to the movie the rules for what is happening in this movie are are all over the place they're very loose it's very dreamlike the whole thing is filmed almost like a dream it's it's the way the characters act sometimes is almost like like it's it's a very i mean i guess it's you know it's a movie about vengeful ghosts right but the movie keeps like an eth- at the real pace all the way through it and are they even ghosts or are they yeah revenants you know right. they're obviously kind of corporeal and but all right so let's the theme of the movie is a hundred. It's the hundred anniversary, hundredth anniversary of the founding of the town, and we find out the founding fathers of the town were trying. We're going to make a deal with a a group of lepers to let them have a leper colony not far outside the town. But what they really ended up doing was having the ship crash in the fog by luring them with the fire to the wrong place, so that all those people would drown and they would steal the gold that was being offered to help set up the leper colony to found the town and the conceit is these are the vengeful spirits or zombies of the crew and the lepers come back to take their revenge but it's also not clear well did they want their gold back? Do they want revenge on the town? Do they want their revenge on the ancestors of the six founders? Because at one point they're saying, well, six must die. Okay, well, so if the, they kill six people in town, will they be happy and go away? We don't know. Do they want their gold back? And that, like, it, It's weird. Well, it's very weird because you also have like, do they follow are they following pseudo vampire rules because they knock sometimes to announce themselves before they show up i almost wonder like 
at first I thought it was just, and, and probably it is just, you know, creepy for the sake of being creepy. Right. But I almost wonder it's if, you know, now knowing later, um, that the 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 revenants are looking for specific people like is it just their way of checking who it is they're about to kill to see if it's who that was supposed to be <laughs> you know well, what I'm saying? They, it's just a strange add-on the, the knocking the random knocking before they uh, do whatever they do it seems like not only do they have to exist within the fog which they can obviously control because there's this whole yeah. point where the fog can move against the wind right but it also seems like they only have between the hour of midnight and 1 a.m. to get the job done. Got it. Because once 1 a.m., you know, because there's a scene where it looks like they're just about to kill Tom Atkins. And then the clock strikes one and the ghosts vanish, as does the fog. Got it. But when we first see our first attack on people, it's a group of uh, a trio of fishermen on their boat out to sea and you know they're listening to stevie wayne adrian barbo on the radio and you know they're getting the weather report about the fog and what of them saying she don't know what she's talking about there ain't no fog out there and you know the other guys are talking in the background there ain't no fog out there. hey there's fog out there and we get one of the creepiest sequences oh, of sure. the whole movie right up front where you know and now it's almost like a bermuda triangle ghost ship story it begins with where this you know old ship kind of sails out of the the fog and the two guys on deck witness it while the guy on the below you know reading the instruments is like oh there's something big right next to us and we see the two guys on deck killed horribly they're gouged with swords and rapiers and hooks and then they go down below deck and get the other guy and then you know, it cuts away. And then we meet Nick Castle, who picks up, uh, played by Tom Atkins, who picks up a hitchhiker played by Jamie Lee Curtis. It's an 80s movie, so they fall in love immediately. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. And that is not because this movie takes place over the course of what, a day or so? Yeah. Uh, like a night and a day. So, yeah, like immediately is, is, not, is not, not even like movie immediately, just like immediately. <laughs> like practically at first blink. Because they're in bed, like the next scene you see them is they're in bed. So Tom Atkinson's Tom Atkins Nick Castle story follows along. He was supposed to meet that ship the next morning at the dock, and when they don't come into dock, he gets worried and hires another ship to go out searching for the crew. Meanwhile, we have Janet Lee and uh, Nancy Loomis. Who I'm gonna say Nancy Loomis is the MVP for early John Carpenter movies. Yeah. She's an assault on Precinct 13. Yep. Halloween. Yep. Plays her own corpse in Halloween too. Uh, Halloween Prince of Darkness. Three. Or are you going she's in not, order? She's not in Prince of Darkness. She's not in Prince of Darkness. No. Who she's in the you? fog and she's in Hall she's the only person in Halloween one, two, and three. Now, right. granted, like I said, she only plays her own corpse in Halloween too. Right, but she's in it. Yeah, obviously, acting just wasn't her thing because um, Halloween three is her last acting credit, other than a few TV appearances. And I guess she went into teaching acting. I guess she just must not have liked it because she's good. You know, she uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. No, you know, she's got very all good. the all the fame and glory, but I I think she, if she'd stuck with it, she could have possibly had the same career 
as Jamie Lee Curtis. But anyways, Janet Lee is playing a town councilwoman who's trying to put together the celebration for the 100th anniversary. And there's going to be a statue unveiling and a candlelight vigil and a whole, you know, thing celebrating. And Nancy Loomis is playing her assistant who, if it wasn't for John Houseman, she'd be getting the Whitbistle Award. Because the way she plays this assistant, and, and even just the line of dialogue she's given where Janet, you know, she, Janet Lee's always giving her a list of things to do, and Nancy Loomis is always saying, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yep. yes, ma'am. And then Janet Lee says to her, you're the only person I know who can make yes, ma'am sound like F you. And she just says deadpan, yes, yes ma'am. ma'am. <laughs> yeah, that's a great scene. That's like the best non-harder scene of the movie. Yes, so, you know, they're running around town and we find out later that uh, Janet Lee's husband is one of the fishermen who were killed. So, again, we don't know if he's a descendant of one of the town founders or not. But when Nick, when Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis, who has now become his companion slash girlfriend, uh, wants to go along for the, the, the search for the missing boat and they find the boat. And that, like I said, we get this kind of Bermuda Triangle thing where, you know, Tom Atkins and the the guy who owned the boat that brought them out there, they board the ship and they're like, it's like nobody's here. And Tom Atkins looks below deck and it's like, there's salt water in the generator. And the other guy says, and yet the deck is bone dry. And, you know, they call the Coast Guard and while they're waiting for the Coast Guard, they look around the ship and, you know, it's like, I was on this boat just a few days ago. It wasn't like this. And he holds up a beer can. It's like this beer can is filled with salt water. You know, everything's rusted. It's all, it's all like cold in here. It's almost like this boat sank and yet it didn't sink. And they find the body of only one of the fishermen. The other two bodies are never found. And again, this we get the sequence where uh, they they bring him in for the autopsy, and we get you know a brief appearance by Darwin Justin playing the Doctor Fibes, the coroner, and it's like you know I this guy drowned, but you say you found him below decks on the ship, and he's like yeah yeah no, so he couldn't have drowned. No, he definitely drowned, and he's been at the bottom of the ocean for at least a month. But even I know that can't be true because I saw him three days ago. So they're trying to figure out, you know, what happened to this guy? How does he look like a drowning victim who's been at the bottom of the ocean for a month and yet has only been dead for a few hours? And while they're out in the hall discussing it, Jamie Lee Curtis is alone in the room and the body gets up like a zombie and looks like he's going to attack her. But he just drops a few feet away and writes the number three on the ground. So, And again, this is never really explained, which almost in a way is kind of brilliant. Because if you really think about it, would there ever really be a tidy little bow tied on any of these mysteries? No. You know, it's almost like the fact that they don't have that knowledge. Like there isn't just the old man with the book saying it's all right here. Right. You know, even if John Hausman were to play that character, even he doesn't get the story quite right. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. It, you know, the way he tells it is he's either telling, either he's telling a different story, right. 
or he's telling the story as he knows it, or he's telling it the way he feels like telling it to scare some kids. Yes. But um, and- like, there's no, uh, I mean, you pointed out a comparison that I never really thought of uh, before, but really fits in um, Phantasm. It's very similar to Phantasm that it keeps you very uneasy. It's very dreamlike. Um, there's no full. I mean, this movie's a bit more coherent than 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 Fanta- or a bit more direct. Yes, I guess, than Phantasm is, but it also, but it does have those same qualities to it. Definitely. And I, I didn't really, I never really picked up on that until you mentioned it, and I think that nails it pretty well. And of course, always the music score by John Carpenter is absolutely oh. brilliant. That keeps the sense of dread throughout. Even yeah. the bright, sunny scenes of the beach, you know, a kid running across a beach has the sense of dread added to it because of the music. The- you know, there's a scene where, where Janet Lee and, and Nancy Loomis drive up to the church. Broad daylight, nothing sinister is happening, but the music keeps you on edge. The, the music is damn near as good as Halloween. Um, or I should say I like it, you know, almost as much. Um, the visuals are outstanding in this movie, uh, which isn't a surprise because Dean Cundy did it. And Dean Cundy's amazing. Um, I mean, for a lot of the credit that I will give John Carpenter, I mean, some a lot of that has to do with, you know, the, the way these movies are filmed and the way that they're framed and the way the shots are done. And Dean Cundy and his you know, team has an awful lot to do with that. So obviously, you know, huge shout out to him because one thing he managed to accomplish in this movie that few movies are able to do and it seems like increasingly worse so is that this is an objectively like halloween this is an objectively a very dark movie it's dark most of the time but you have no problem seeing it no even with the you know what i'm saying and, it's still a beautiful film <laughs> and you think back you know this was made in 1980 but they make this effective fog yeah. flowing around and they obviously made it get to go where they needed to go. And it's a beautiful film. And that's really why I want to get the Blu-ray. Like I want to see a good remastered version as I want to see what it can look like. Cause it is a beautiful film, but even with the like 23 or so year old Blu-ray, uh, sorry, DVD that we had um, for such a dark movie, you can see everything, which tells you that it can be done. You know, you can film a dark scene and still actually see things and not have to have, you know, you're perfectly calibrated to contrast TV. Like it can be done. Dean Cundy figured it out and he figured it out in two movies in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, well, but Dean Cundy is, you know, a brilliant cinematographer. No, he's That's why a he had yeah. a huge career. Do you, I mean, I, it, it's only until recently that I looked up the breath at what he'd done and it's fascinating. <laughs> Um, I mean, he's he's been a part of some amazingly huge things. So, you know, because um, uh, so much of this movie, I mean, or of any John Carpenter movie, right, relies so heavily on the visuals. This movie, even more so than Halloween, and they're brilliant. I mean, it, what, it's what draws you back. Like the creature effects are fantastic. Now, Rob, Rob Bowden. Yeah. So Robert, right. Who we'd work with again on the thing later. Like it's, 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 um, that is what ultimately holds Captain the movie Blake. together. Who also plays Captain Blake, right? Um, but I mean, that is what holds the movie together um, and just keeps you watching. You know, to me, that's just what keeps me sucked into it. Well, I mean, again, between the the look of the fog and the it's look gorgeous. of yeah. the ghosts or revenants or whatever you want to call them, it's incredibly creepy. And they don't have yep. to move fast or jump out. They just no. have to appear in the fog and you get a chill up your spine. And 
you know, again, we get that sequence at the beginning, and then most of the rest of the movie is them trying to solve the mystery of like what is going on in this town, you know, and and uh, Adrian Barbeau and her relationship with with um, Dan the Weatherman over the phone, you know, trying to track this weird fog and her trying to piece together the mystery of what's happening with about you know her son brought home a, a piece of driftwood that had the word Dane yeah. written on it as if it, you know, uh, it, as it's obviously from the Elizabeth Dane. I thought their interplay was kind of fun. Like I, I liked the way they used Adrian Brubbo in this. Um, how she's basic. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, she's kind of always stuck in there, but I like the way she ends up getting used when she's, um, you know, narrating the position of the fog because she's got this unique position, right? Like more or less above everyone and from a distance, so she can see what the fog is doing. And she's and, uh, the one that actually threads everybody together. Exactly, and and you know her exposition back with Charles Cipher's like I don't know, I loved all that stuff. Like it's obviously not the scariest part of the film, but it, I, I thought it really added some, like it it both added but also not really because there's still so much you don't know. But it's like, um okay, this is like a real thing that can even be picked up on radar. Like, you know, um, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, I liked, I, 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 I can, I can understand the, um, I can understand the detraction in some cases because, you know, but at the same time, like, it's still too good. Like, it's still too well shot. It's still too well uh, paced. It's still too creepy. It's still too effective where it's effective. It's like Phantasm. Like, if you watch Phantasm, you're like, this isn't for me. Like, I get it. But to me, it's just so phantasm that it remains too compelling to, to, to not like. Yeah, despite its story flaws and plot holes, the film works right. as it's, a whole. It's, it's just really, creepy. It really does. It's, you know, especially when I saw this for the first time around, I don't know, 10, maybe even younger. So around the same time I saw Halloween, so mid-80s, give or take. Um, I was too worried about being creepy from the scary-ass fucking zombies to think too much of them. It's really not until I got much older that I realized, oh, yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, I can see why he would be disappointed, but I don't know. I still kind of see it as a, as a as a young kid every time I watch it, and I just fall in love with the uh, well, with the fog itself, like just how that, that whole atmosphere is fantastic. Well, it's like if you walk through a haunted house, you yeah. know, attraction, there's no story, you know, being right. told in this haunted house attraction. It's just a bunch of visuals and jump scares that give you a thrill, and that's what this movie does. The Hal Holbrook Yes, I got it right. Yeah, you got it right. Yep. Hal Holbrook is, you know, <laughs> the one who is really piecing the mystery together because he finds his grandfather's journal that, you know, tells the tale about, you know, the Elizabeth Dane and the leper colony and the, you know, murder and the stealing of the gold. But we also find out, well, let's, we're going to jump to the, the middle section. It's, it's really well done because we're cutting between different characters and, you know, the stuff going on in their, in their world and trying to piece this mystery together, and even if they're not even actively trying to solve the mystery, because Tom Atkins wants to know what happens to his fishing buddies. Right. Um, Janet Lee is trying to, you know, knows her husband is among the missing now, and but is still trying to do her job as the town founder. And while everybody's trying to tell her, you know, your husband's missing, we realize if you want to, you know, just go home and wait. And she says, no, I, I, it, there's nothing I going home and, and just waiting isn't is going to kill me. Let me get my mind 
working while the Coast Guard is out there searching for my husband. Let me do this. They need to um, keep the beaches open, man. <laughs> for the celebration, well, you know. I, I, but, you know, again, it's not like they know, anybody knows, like, if you keep the beaches open, we're going to be attacked by revenue. <laughs> that just know? always comes back to Jaws. I wanted to yeah. make a, um, I wanted to make a, you know, someone says, I don't know, go ship. They say what, but I couldn't come up with it. So just think of something along those lines in your head and, and laugh. You at say it. revenant, everybody says, huh? Right. What? You say ghost, and we got a panic on the April the twenty first. I mean, how many times can you go see a statue? You have to see it. <laughs> you know, I mean it, it might not be there the next time you go by. Well, but again, you know, it's something, you know, obviously a small town, small town pride, right. the statue might bring tourists to the town, or you know, whatever. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm honest. I mean, factually, I'm making way more of it than the, than the movie did. It's just for whatever reason, I immediately think, you know, Jaws in this situation. It always comes back to anytime it has to do with like water. I always think Jaws, because especially if there's like a celebration of some kind going on at the same time. So, anyways, towards the end of the movie, because you know the the um the the stuff that goes on in between isn't really that important it's 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 interesting and fun to watch but but i mean it's shot so sinister though well but yeah but we just need to jump to like well it's an extended climax it's not just one climax but obviously you know while he's in the bar tom atkins is with uh jamie lee curtis and they're just kind of having a drink they know the the town celebration is starting and he's listening to Stevie Wayne on the radio, she's giving a report about what happened to the seagrass, which was the, the, the fishing vessel with the, the missing men. And he listens to what she's saying. He calls into her saying, you know, it's interesting that that's the information you're giving out. I was one of the guys who, who found the seagrass, but, you know, this is what we found when we got there. And then she tells her him about, you know, this is off the air, you know, talking on the phone while she's playing a record. She tells him about how her son found a gold coin, but when he reached to go for it, it turned into a piece of driftwood called, you know, for the Elizabeth Dane. And that how the weather tracking station nearby run by Dan O'Bannon has been tracking this weird fog bank. So they hang up and... Tom Atkins like, well, I'm going to go drive out to the weather station. I'm going to go talk to this Dan guy. Maybe, you know, we can figure something out about where the fog was when it hit the ship, and maybe that'll help us narrow the search for the two missing fishermen. So he goes driving out there. Uh, he, he starts driving towards that, and Stevie Wayne's back on the radio, and Dan O'Bannon calls in to say, hey, the fog bank is coming back. It, it's moving in, actually, towards me. And her, we should have pointed this out. Her radio station is in an old lighthouse, so she's up in this lighthouse, where she's got a view of not only the ocean but a lot of Antonio Bay itself. So, as Dan O'Bannon is talking to her on the phone, the fog moves in, and we actually we we see these this ethereal light moving in too. And he's like, "What's going on up there? Some guy's shining a light through the window." And Stevie Wayne on the phone is like, well, well, wait a minute. what What's happening? It's like, oh, it's just some kids playing a prank. But she knows there's something wrong. And she's just trying to like, well, well, don't go outside. And that's when there's the knock on the door. And again, we know it's one of the ghosts knocking on the door. 
he does it and he thinks it's a kid playing a prank and he's like well they're not gonna like finding me at home and he goes and opens the door and he's like oh there's nobody out there while stevie wayne is shouting at the phone no close the door lock the door and he's killed by one of the ghosts few moments later, you know, the the fog moves on. Tommy Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis arrive at the weather station and they find out that, you know, he's missing and everybody's gone. And then we see the fog go up to this uh, phone booth and it cuts the phone line, or at least it shorts out the phone line. So not just ghosts in the fog, but the fog itself has the ability to do things. In fact, it goes through the power station outside of town, takes out the power. So, um, Janet Lee, when the power goes out, of course, they're doing a candlelight vigil in the center of town, and Janet Lee and the sheriff and, and uh, Nancy Loomis are all like, well, this is almost wrapped up here anyways. The procession past the statue is almost wrapped up. It'll be done in 20 minutes. You know, so we might as well just finish. And, you know, because, again, it's a power outage. It, it's not like there's extreme weather to force people off the streets. And the sheriff is like, all right, well, we can wrap things up here. Why don't you go home? So Janet Lee and Nancy Loomis get in their car and drive away. Now things really start ramping up. Because... Uh, Stevie Wayne notices the fog is now going in on her home and her young boy is home with, you know, Mrs. Cobritz, the, the older babysitter, and she starts getting worried. And as the fog encloses that house, there's a knock at the door. So the lights are out. There's the sinister knock at the door. The house is surrounded by, by spooky, iridescent fog. And, you know, the little boy's like, oh, gee, what's going on? And Mrs. Colbert's is like, well, go to your room while I answer the door. And you're like, even if you don't think there's a ghost out there, why are you answering the door that's being pounded on like that in the dark when the lights have gone out and the phones are just locked the door? But no, she's going to go up and open the door and she's telling them, you know, go to your room, go, go to your room. He's like, but I want to see who it is. And she's like, go obviously nervous, but not only does she open the door, she doesn't open it a little bit and peek her head out. She opens it all the way and the fox starts coming in and she turns to, you know, to the kid back into his room, which he goes and then she's killed by behind by the ghost. And, you know, I don't want to do victim blaming. Right. You know, woman. Right. What did you just go through this whole step for (laughs) of locking everything down? Yeah. yeah. What was the point? Like, what were you going to see anyway? And no, no, she doesn't say, who is it? Right. You know, like, oh, is somebody in trouble out there? You right. know, we don't have a phone for you to use. She just opens the door. And when she doesn't see anything out there, turns her back to the open door. I remember I remember one time I went camping. Right. And I'm, I'm in my tent. It's whatever o'clock at night. I don't remember. But it's it's like late. Right. And I hear rustling and movement outside my tent. And at first I'm like, oh, I should check that out. And then I'm also like, but then what? <laughs> so I just went like, all right, I just let it, I, I don't, I, to this day, I have no idea what it was. Most likely a raccoon or something. But it occurred to me that like, okay, let's say it is whatever. What do I do next? Like what's, what's the next plan, <laughs> right? 
Like, I don't know what our, what our plan was, especially after going ahead and hunking everything down. Yeah, no, it makes no sense. But now she has become the fifth victim yep. to the Revenants. Now, while this is happening, Stevie Wayne is on the radio. You know, she the phone's out, so she, she was trying to call the police. But she is over the airwaves begging, you know, my son is trapped by the fog. She's giving her address. Please, somebody go help him. Nick Castle and, and Jamie Lee Curtis hear this over the radio and they go racing to the rescue. And this is really, you know, one of the most intense yeah. scenes of the movie. It's because really it's a well race done. intense time because the revenants are now in the house busting down the door to the kid's room. Well, and again, it's a little silly because the kid's on his bed huddled up in the corner. Mrs. Cobritz? Right. You know, there's this banging at the door. Right. Mrs. Cobritz, are you playing a joke on me? Yeah. No, it's like, no, kid. There's nothing much he can do. No. But as the shot is surrounding. Go ahead. I was no, I'm sorry. I'm going to say like the whole the the whole part, uh, the whole way they they use her that way, you know, pl- um, calling out over the radio, like it, it sort of reminds me of the in a good way of, at the end of um, uh, Halloween three, but um, I don't know. I just uh, you know you could just hear the desperation in her voice, yeah, and you're just thinking running through your mind. It's like yeah, she can't do a damn thing except just hope someone on the radio here. I just thought that was really cool. Brilliantly acted by Adrian Barbeau, who is essentially in a studio room by herself, right? Trying to act out like her child is in danger and there's nothing she can do about it. Please, somebody help my child. Like just so, literally anyone who can hear my voice. Yeah. Uh, Tom Atkins as Nick gets there in the nick of time. <laughs> Because the fog hasn't fully surrounded the house, so he's able to get to the win- bedroom window of the boy. Who I, I can't believe I forgot the kid's name, but not really that important. And as no, the zombie yeah. ghost revenant things are breaking down the kid's door, he smashes out the kid's window and yells, "You know, come on, come on, kid, come on!" Now, I don't think there's any young children who listen to this podcast, but right, uh, there are. This would be the one time it would be okay for you to go to the man breaking through your window of your bedroom. Right. Yeah. When there's killer ghosts coming through the door and there's a man, even he's, he's a stranger you don't know, but he's smashed in the glass and saying, come on, come on. This is the one time it is acceptable for you to go to that man. What if he's, what if he's like fog machine guy? Well, here's the thing. It's not like you saw the zombies and you could say, like, all right, he's not a zombie, so he's probably fine. Right. I mean, what's coming through that door is obviously bad. Even if, you know, you're rolling the dice like he could be, you know, a horrible pedophile, you know what's coming through that door isn't good. Right, but you don't know he was the thing that was trying to come through the door in the first place. Well, I guess, or at least, you know, part of them, anyway, I should say. He's talking and reacting. Nothing coming through the door is. Oh, I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm probably taking my chances as well, because once you get a good look at that fog, like, yeah, it's, you know, something really hinky is going on here. So he gets the kid out the window. They go running back to his truck. And, and then this, again, it shows how, you know, these are intelligent characters, because while he was getting the kid, Jamie Lee Curtis got into the driver's seat so they could make a quick getaway. Now, unfortunately... They don't quite make that quick getaway because they're 
kind of stuck in the mud, but they're able to free themselves and escape, you know, as the car is being surrounded by the revenants. It's a really intense scene. So as Atkins, the boy, and Jamie Lee Curtis are escaping the fog, Janet Lee and Nancy Loomis are in their car driving through town, and they're all tuned into Stevie Rain on the radios. And Stevie is watching as the the fog envelops the town, and she's giving out warnings like, you know, it's now moving up the street. If you're trying to get up the street, it's cutting you off. You're going to have to turn and go up, you know, up towards Beacon Hill. It's... And, you know, it, it's it's really intense as, as you know, she's given almost this play by. It is. It's it's almost War of the Worlds like, right? Yes. That's yes. what I like to think of as War of the Worlds. And they're following her instructions and the, 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 the fog is actually leading them to the church. And. Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis and the boy get there just ahead of Janet Lee and Nancy Loomis. They're all getting out of their cars and they're like, the fog cut us off. You know, it, it, it led us up here. And he's like, well, where is it now? It's coming up the drive. And you see the fog actually chasing them up the drive. And they go running into the church. And, you know, that's where um, Father Malone, Hal Holbrook is, you know, telling them, you know, we're doomed. You know, it's all over. <laughs> He's been you drinking. Know, yeah. They're they're here for revenge, and yeah, and he's drunk, and Tom Atkins is trying to get like, well, what do you know? What 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 can you? Oh, we, we we can't be helped, and you know, as the fog is encircling the church, Janet Lee is like, we can we should go into the room out back. You know, it's it's more secure, and they they get into the room and they're they're locking themselves in, and you know, since Hal Holbrook had told part of the story to Janet Lee earlier, she's trying to, you know, bring everybody else up to speed. And of course, again, he's drunk and not really clear. And that's when, you know, uh, Tom Atkins is like, well, well, where is this journal? And he's like, oh, I I left it out there. And Tom Atkins, you know, ventures out into the church as the fog comes in and the revenants are now starting to smash their way to the the glass, the the stained glass windows and get into the church and he grabs the journal and they go running back and try to keep piecing things together. And now the revenants are trying to get into that room as well. And they're trying to push stuff in front of the windows. And one of them is grabbing on to uh, Nancy Loomis's hair and trying to drag her out. And while they're fighting off the revenants, Hal Holbrook leads the last passage and realizes that his Great, his grandfather hid the gold somewhere in the church, and he goes to where he found the journal, which was part of this wall that had collapsed earlier. And he finds this big golden cross hidden there, and he realizes, okay, maybe if I bring this out and offer it to them, it'll end this. And since everybody else is busy fighting off the ghouls as they're coming in through the windows, yeah, it's very metal living dead. Yeah. In a good way. In a good way. It's very reminiscent of that. But, you know, with the creepy fog, like, you know, thickening in and just the the shots, like you, if you look at the poster, uh, it's very similar to what you might see on the, I guess, depending on the version of the poster you have. But, um, you know, just the scene where you get a much better look at the handful of them, um, you know, walking up the middle of the church, I guess, Blake in front with the fog in front of them. It's just it's just iconic. It's a, it's a fantastic shot. I can't I can't I can't 
I can't praise, you know, Dean Cundy's work here enough because this is mostly a dark scene and a mostly unlit church that's covered in fog, but it's still, you can see everything. Or at least you can see it the way that it was intended, the way that the story was intended to tell you. It's not just like a wash of black. Yes. And while all that was going on, it, it's obvious like that the characters are just as confused as we are. Like, right. you know, you know, the six. Because no one really knows the full story to, uh, no. up to this point. And they're not 100% sure whether the Revenants want revenge against six people or the ancestors. Because also while this is going on, and again, it doesn't really make sense when you think about it. Right. Stevie, Stevie Wayne is being chased around her lighthouse by another Revenant. Right. And it's like, okay, so they can go. I mean, the fog's everywhere. But it's like, well, what do they really want with her? You know? Right. As much as I guess you know, if they why were they still seemingly after the kid? Like, was he a witness? (laughs) Well, and that's the thing, it's like if they want six victims, obviously, and they're in not particular about who the six victims are, different story, yeah. You go after as many people as you want, right? But, but it it seems it seems they're targeting, you know, right? Especially the church, like they knew the gold was there, which, which would again explain why they kind of announced themselves first and don't always attack everyone they see like Tom Atkins at the beginning and almost you almost got the impression like he was trying to check to see if it was someone they were looking for the right. the revenant I mean so Father Malone carries this heavy crucif- gold crucifix out into the church and is you know calling to the revenant saying you know I'm the one you want take me and take the gold and you know lift the curse and we get our really first clear view of these revenants in Again, kudos to Rob Botain for yeah. these these makeup effects. They are incredible. They have these glowing eyes. They're they're these desiccated zombie looking things. It is really really creepy. It's it's everything that they build it up to be. It's 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 great. Yeah. And you know, as he's giving the gold back to Blake, the leader, you know, obviously some sort of supernatural energy is being unleashed and. Tom Atkins realizes Father Malone has gone out there to to deal with them, and he pulls them away, and there's a bright light, and then the revenants disappear, and the fog rolls away. So you get the idea, all right, that's what they were after this whole time. They wanted their gold back. And, you know, you get this typical kind of demouncement, like it's all over, and everybody's like, happy with, and, and, narrating over this is Stevie Way talking about how the fog's moving back out to sea and you know must all be over now and they're safe and everybody drives off leaving Father Malone alone at the church and this is where he starts going gee I, I wonder why they didn't take me well we get that stinger ending where they come back and say, okay, you want us to take you? We'll take you. And the fog rolls in and the revenants appear and they decapitate Father Malone and cut to credits. Yeah, I'm not sure not sure how to feel about that ending, but I guess it's an 80s horror movie. It just kind of had to go that way. Well, I mean, seems like every horror movie goes that way nowadays regardless. There's sure. got to be that final stinger of an ending. And you know, again, it's it's a horror movie, so you want to leave the the audience, you know, shook and you know, off balance, and and it does that. 
Well, I mean, it was, it was expected anyway. Like, I mean, that's how it was, you know, at at least if it was supposed to play out to the curse or whatever, or legend or prophecy, Um, you know, that's the, how, that's how it should have gone. It's just, you know, the fog and everything is gone. So again, it just leaves you questioning the, the rules. Yes. Did they need the sixth victim? And did the sixth victim have to be a descendant of the original founders? Because it's never clear whether Mrs. Colbert was a descendant of the founder or the three fishermen or, you know, Dan O'Bannon. Right. We just know they took six people and their gold back. And whether or not they're going to be back in another hundred years. Right. That's a good point. Right. Are they fully appeased or, yeah, will they be back again? I I hadn't even thought of that until now. But Again, this is just one of the most effective, creepy ghost horror movies or zombies. Again, what we they're referred to as ghosts in the credits. They're straight up called ghosts, so that's I'm fine with referring to them as that. Although they're obviously very corporeal, they can be touched. They have a physical presence when they are there. But this is a creepy, awesome horror movie that is perfect for any Halloween movie marathon. Yes. Um. Yeah, you know, we, we go on and on about how much we love John Carpenter. And again, this is this is within my my top um, five favorites, I think, of his. Oh, for sure. Yeah, this um, for me. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's top five. Um, it's always hard. Like, I always think of like, ooh, and that one. But yeah, it's 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 probably top five. It's certainly one of the movies that immediately comes to mind next to Halloween and uh, Escape from New York. Um, I suppose the other being Big Trouble in Little Ch- the others being, you know, but yeah, like I said, you also have, you know, Big Trouble in Little China, the thing. I mean, there's so many options. Um, in the Mouth of Madness, Prince of Darkness are all great. Yeah, I mean, the thing is obviously a horror movie, so I guess I got to consider that my favorite John Carpenter horror work, but then sure. it would come to um, The Fog. Sure, fair enough. All right, well, anything else to say about this movie in particular? No, not much more to say, except, um, again, I'm kind of curious to see, uh, again, probably just as well that I don't, because if it disappointed Carpenter and, and the crew and enough to, to, to add what they needed to add, then it's not worth seeing. But I am just kind of curious as to what it was that they saw. Um, I guess I can just guess by what was added. And what they added is some of the better components of the film. So obviously glad they did. I'm glad he stuck with it. Uh, I'm glad they you know, they gave it what everything that they had um, anyway, because, you know, so much of it works so well, um, despite, you know, like you had said before, like there are shortcomings, there are plot holes, there are story flaws, but, you know, what you are given, especially visually by Rob Bottin, by John Carpenter, by um, the actors and by Dean Cundy's uh, cinematography is just, it's too compelling not to enjoy. So this is one I always go back to um, often enough, not quite as often as Halloween maybe, but, you know, damn pretty damn close uh i I remember being a staple um seemed like for an awful long time uh as a kid and it was on like at any given time of the day like i think i saw this so many times probably on like a bright saturday afternoon but it was still just as creepy yes um no this is a very effective movie and it gives you and that may be what their reshoots and additions were about was giving you enough highs and lows you know between the shocks and scares because, you know, if things just keep coming at you throughout the whole movie, it stops being scary. Right. And if they don't give you enough shocks and scares throughout the movie, you start getting bored and start tuning out. Right. And I mean, the effect of uh, the effectiveness of the score um, might be second to only Halloween. Um, 
the way that he underscores even the relatively mundane scenes just keeps you at unease throughout the whole film. Um, something that I kind of remember again was similar to Phantasm, like even the most what what would be mundane scenes, you know, mundane for the characters, like you know, not, not necessarily like horror things happening, were always shot with the sort of just uh, an uneasy quality that you were never you, you never quite felt at ease in any given scene. Yes. Uh, we should point out there is a not good remake. Yes, yeah, rather, rather bad. Um, I mean, judge for yourself, but it was, it was PG thirteen and had nothing to do with with Carpenter uh, except for him to say, "Yeah, sure, make make a remake." And they changed a bunch of story elements too. Yeah, and honestly, what makes it a bad movie, like the worst movie in my mind, is that if it was absolutely terrible, I'd remember more about it. It's dull. It's but so I, dull. I know I've seen it, but it's so bad it's forgettable, and yeah. that's really the worst a movie could be. Right. It's forgettable. Right. It was so... I The only thing I remember about it um, was, you know, Tom Welling and, and Maggie Grace are in it. That's about it. And that it was just certifiably dull. Well, that and one of the plot points is more about the character of Maggie Grace being the target, yeah, for whatever reason of the Revenants. But again, I don't even remember exactly why, because as we pointed out, it's not out, important. It, it, <laughs> the movie is just so blah. Yeah, it's stupendously it's better off forgotten. Yeah. Um, the I only was... thing, I mean, the only thing it has going for it is it gave us some like reissues and exposure to the original film. Ex so. Yes, exactly. Um, I don't mind them giving it a shot to remake because when I heard they were remaking it, I was like, "All right, interesting. Let's see what they do with like new effects and 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 stuff, and you know, more time." Especially because I was hoping against hope that Carpenter might somehow be more involved, but that's not what we got. But you know, oh well, it's whatever. Um, well, you know, you know how we feel about remakes. We did an episode on it, and I mean, you mentioned just a little while ago, John Carpenter's The Thing, which is a remake. So, you know. Well, but not only that, we've seen his Assault on Precinct get re remake. Assault on Precinct 13 get a remake. Yes, and that was fine. It's not amazing, decent, yeah. but it's decent. Yeah, It's decent. It, it changes a lot, which is a good thing in yeah. many ways. It makes it, it its it, own. They make it their own thing, and, you know, it's decent. And I'm, I've heard some people say they like it better than the original, which I completely disagree with, but I at least get where they're coming from. I can see that. Yeah, I can see it. It's a more, it's, it's a, well, I guess they're both stylistic in their own way, but it's, uh, if, if you are of the time, then yeah, yeah, I can see that. It's, it's, it's a good movie. The, the same can see, be said about Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween. Agreed. I, I don't think it's nearly as good as Carpenter's original, but I can see, you know, its merit. It, yeah, in and of itself, I actually, I do appreciate Rob Zombie's Halloween. But the Fog remake is just... Bleh. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's just, you can f see that it was just, it was probably done with all of the best intentions, but ultimately ended up being kind of lazy and very dull. And I don't mean lazy in that, you know, the people doing it weren't like trying and, you know, being professionals and stuff. It's just like they didn't they just kind of made a movie called The Fog, <laughs> you know, that almost seemed like they were relying too much on the new technology to do the special effects. With yeah. The fog and the ghosts. Yeah. This is like early like, like 2005. So this is like not great CGI times. Necessarily. Like this is what we're going to, you know, sell the movie on. Right. All right. Um, what do you got for recommendations? 
So I only have one recommendation because there's always one movie that comes to mind. Uh, I saw many years later, thanks to you, um, that that I think of when I think of this movie. Now, granted, that's not strictly how the recommendations are supposed to work, but I have to recommend Tomb of the Blind Dead. Um, Which we will be discussing this month. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll be discussing that later on this month. But um, man, it works on so many levels um, in so many of the same ways with not not exactly the same uh, imagery, but very similar. Um, Two of the Blind Dead is a Spanish Portuguese um, film that you can find. It's it's you know it was it's pretty popular uh, among genre fans who discovered it later on, like we did. And um, you know it's worth the watch if you can you know get past subtitles and all that, and maybe a bit of an older film. Um, but if you're a fan of the Fog, I think you should check out the Two of the Blind Dead and probably the sequels. There's like a I don't know I f- I always feel like there's a kinship between these movies in a way. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Especially with the the look of the right, the, the look zombies. of the zombies, and usually accompanied by the probably graveyard in this case fog, but you know, like the earth, you know, the the whole um, ethereal aspect of the uh, the way they shoot the zombies, I just think is really great. Well, all right, I, I'm going to recommend another John Carpenter film, Prince of Darkness. Great one, which has some certain similarities, you know, with the siege of a church, and you know, all sorts of shenanigans going on. Um. Also, you know, I guess a more in-line double feature that would work with this would, of course, be uh, Stephen King's The Mist, very well directed by Frank Darabont. Again, it's, you know, about a mist, but with horrible things in it. Um, The movie, you know, plays out completely different. It's it's a lot different tonally and everything, but it is, a you know, again, it's... Directed it's about Frank, killers in a mist, and yeah, Frank Darabont, right? Sorry, directed by Frank Darabont and written by Stephen King, and it's actually my favorite Stephen King short story and my favorite King, Stephen King film adaptation. Is it really? Oh yeah. See, I didn't, I didn't know either of those things. I get it, but I didn't know either of those things. Oh, okay. I mean, Salem's Lot, the seventy-nine miniseries, is a very close second, but The Mist is my favorite. Yeah, and certainly not a certainly not a short story. Um. Oh boy, I guess I don't know what uh, I don't know what I'd pick for a Stephen King short story for sure, but certainly for his film, it's going to be Salem's Lot. Yeah. Uh, then one other the recommendation that's going to seem kind of odd is a '50s sci-fi horror movie called "Fiend Without a Face." Right on. Because again, it's about mysterious happenings in this small little town. It's definitely more sci-fi based, but. It starts with these invisible creatures killing people and driving people insane and and ramps up to this really cool siege where the last few people are trapped by the creatures in this this house and they're fighting them off. It's it's an old black and white film uh, starring um, um, Marshall Thompson of um, It the Terror from Beyond Space fame. Fun movie. Check it out if you can see it. Fiend Without a Face. Um, anything else to add? Uh, not for recommendations, no. All right. Well, then, do you have a magnificent seven degrees where we connect this film to my favorite film, The Magnificent Seven? Yes, I do. Um, I have. Uh, so, Jamie Lee Curtis was in this. Uh, she was also in Trading Spaces with Dan Aykroyd, who was in The Blues Brothers with John Belushi, who was in 1941 with Warren Oates, who was in The Wild Bunch with Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen was not in the Wild Bunch. 
He was not? No. Why did I think he was? But Warren Oates was in the Return of the Magnificent Seven with Yul Brenner. So you can go that way. Okay, yeah. Why did I have him in the Wild Watch? That's weird. You know, speaking of trading spaces, this is a little embarrassing for a guy who claims to be movie Matt Sorois. But I didn't really realize until recently the double meaning of the title trading spaces. Oh, really? Yeah, because I was always like, okay, or trading places. Trading places, Sorry, yeah. Trading places. But I was like, okay, yeah, they two guys, they trade places. And I'm like, it was only recently, like, oh, yeah, and they're stock traders too. They're in a place of trading. And then I'm like, sheepishly, like, I probably shouldn't admit to that. But <laughs> since you happened to bring it up, I figured, all right, might as well do it. And if I'm going to call you out on misplacing mis, uh, Mc, Steve McQueen and uh, in, in, uh, Wild Bunch, I, I should at least point out that, yeah, I don't always get things either. Yeah, for some reason I had them written down in the Wild Bunch. I was probably thinking of Return of the Seven. That's more notes. All right. Well, I'm going to go even easier. Even I think I did this before, but I couldn't remember when. But Charles Cyphers was in Death Wish 2 with Charles Bronson. Oh, that's an easy one. I don't know if you've done that before. Go that way. Yeah, you know, I, I've always kind of had it in, in the, the chamber ready to go. And I thought maybe we'd done it before, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm doing it now. I mean, I'm trying to think of what movie you would have done it for. Like, maybe Halloween, but I'm pretty sure you used Donald Pleasance for that. Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought back up to as yeah. well. All right. Well... As always, we, we thank you for listening. And I want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Matt Sorois, all one word, M-O-V-I-E-M-A-T-T-S-I-R-O-I-S. But also, I've just opened up an, a, a profile on Letterboxd, which is a social media platform specifically for movie lovers so you can follow us there at movie matt sorois as well and i think this is really where i want you folks to follow because i'm making lists i'm rating movies i'm doing some reviews it's really very movie oriented so if you're a fan of this podcast follow us on letterboxd it's an app and it's it's actually letterboxd and there's no E between the X and D. It's letter box right to the D. So L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D. And maybe I can get Todd to open up a profile there. You can you can follow us both. So as always, we thank you for listening and hope to have you back next time. Thank you, everyone. Stay gold, people. <laughs>